This episode of the Beat the Off and Path podcast is brought to you by my agency, aloa.agency. That's A-L-O-A dot agency, a full-service digital marketing agency that specializes in small to medium businesses and nonprofits on a mission. We do everything from graphic design, branding, web prototyping, web design, LMS creation, video, 3D, 2D, 3D technical video and animation, and every other thing you can think of to help grow and build a brand in the digital age. For more information, check out aloa.agency. That's A-L-O-A dot agency. Hi, I'm Matt Rogers, and I beat the often path by building consumer products that are good for the planet. Welcome back to the Beat the Often Path podcast. Today, we've got an awesome episode for you. Joining us is Matt Rogers, whom I believe we can accurately call a tech legend. No, seriously. Matt's career began at Apple, where his talent and dedication led him to build the software team responsible for 10 generations of the iconic iPod. As one of the pioneering engineers on the original iPhone, his influence extended through five generations of the device and into the creation of the first iPad. His remarkable contribution to these groundbreaking products has left an indelible mark on the tech landscape. And as if that wasn't enough, Matt co-founded Nest Labs, revolutionizing the smart home device industry with the Nest thermostat. This innovation caught the eye of a little-known company called Google, leading to a high-profile acquisition for $3.2 billion in 2014. But Matt's ambitions, of course, didn't stop there. After Nest, he turned his focus towards philanthropy, particularly in climate-related initiatives. This path has led him to a startling realization about food waste, and together with his former colleague Harry Tannenbaum, he's conceived Mill. This ingenious kitchen bin transforms food scraps into chicken feed, basically indoor composting that doesn't smell up your kitchen, offering a sustainable solution to household waste and contributing significantly to environmental conservation. With Mill, Matt Rogers is not just redefining waste management, he's shaping a future that aligns with the ambitious zero waste goals of cities worldwide, promising a significant reduction in emissions and deforestation. Join us as we explore the journey of this extraordinary innovator and we'll learn how his latest adventure, Mill, is set to make a lasting impact on our planet. So here's Matt Rogers, I'm Ross Palmer, and this is Beat the Often Path. Welcome to the show, Matt. And building consumer products, that is a bit of an understatement. Your background is a little different than most. Uh, what was the first consumer product that you built to start things off? The first thing I built was probably back in 2004. It was the iPod Mini. Uh, that's probably a throwback for a lot of people listening. Eh, nobody's heard of that one. <laughs> so it's it's funny. How, uh, it's one where actually when I joined Apple, I didn't know how big the iPod would become. Uh, actually, similarly, like, like one of the next products I worked on in Apple was for the iPhone, like early prototypes that became the iPhone. And we didn't know at the time that that was going to be a big deal either. Because, I mean, if you read the Steve Jobs folklore, it was like he figured out there was some chips. I mean, I've read the biography, the Walter Isaacson biography. I've been an Apple fanboy since the beginning of time, it feels like. Likewise. Right. And it, it just the very first computer I ever owned was an Apple. I do all of my work on a MacBook Pro. Basically, that never changed since the moment I saw the light. But it was like, oh, we've got, you know, memory hard drive technology is getting smaller over here. What if we put it in a form factor? And this is the beginning of the iPod. That's what the folklore says. Is that more or less true? Uh, yeah, that is more or less true. Uh, my, my business partner at Nest, Tony, uh, pitched Steve and Apple on on that exact concept, like, hey, like, can we take a small little portable hard drive and b you know, build a portable music player? 
And but, but actually, what was great about the iPod was the hardware was really cool. But actually, what made it work was having iTunes and having the music service on the back end. Like that was what enabled it. Uh, because otherwise, like you'd have to go and like rip CDs and like who's going to do yes. all that stuff. Uh, yeah, the end to end experience. Just kidding. <laughs> no. Um, but yeah, that's fascinating. And, and also the folklore says, I know there's so much to cover with your particular story, but the folklore also says that it was a bit of a difficult sell that you'd think that the iPod would be this thing that would just market itself and that it just found its audience almost immediately. But in fact, that wasn't the case. Had to go canvas on college campuses and sort of tell people like, hey, this is something you should need. It wasn't an instantaneous success, was it? It was not. It was really not. And think about like the early iPods. So a $600 music player. <laughs> that uh, only worked with Macs. And you know, like, if you like, rewind the clock back to like 2000, 2001, like Macs were not as ubiquitous as they are today. Right. Uh, I mean, really, I think about like what really drove the growth for iPod, which eventually drove the growth of Apple and the company that we have today uh, is when the iPod moved to USB and worked with Windows. Right. And that became That's something right. that everybody could use. And brought more people in and actually set the stage for what the iPhone would be, a platform for everybody. Incredible. So your side, you were more on the software side, right? You did the software for that for many years. Um, were you part of the first iterations of that software? Were you the one who came up with some of those instrumental technologies and so scrolling through the, first, the library, for example? For the first iPhone, I was the, let's call it the software engineer who worked on the software to make the hardware work. So. Okay. Uh, for the engineers, like I did a lot of firmware and operating system work, did a lot of work at the factory to make it possible to build the product, uh, and basically lived in Asia for about a year to make that first one happen. That's so fascinating. And so how did you get started? Because like, I, I really am just in over my head here because you went from that to Nest and now you have a new product called Mill. There's just an incredible journey here. Um, so how did you get in at Apple? Was it something, did you always know you wanted to be in software? Let's just try oh to gosh. break apart the story that is you. Were you always uh, more of an inventor, an innovator? What do you consider yourself as? Uh, I'm kind of a product guy, if I were to say. Okay. A product guy, but I'm also a climate guy and, and, and we'll get to that mm. in a bit. But actually- yeah. I always wanted to work at Apple. And mm. when I was 13, so this is like back in the early 90s, my grandparents yeah. took me to California for my 13th birthday. And like part of the highlight of the trip was visiting the Infinite Loop campus and like taking pictures with Susan Kerr's iconic like yeah. icons yeah. in the lawn. Iconic, that's a good word. Yeah, <laughs> pun intended, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, indeed. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I always wanted to work at Apple. And I got to tell you, like, I got very lucky. It was like not by like skill or like meeting the right people. I literally like threw my resume in the pile for an internship and I got it. Whoa, you began as an intern. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Whoa, what a story. Okay, so yeah, you were you were obsessed with this, but I, I can understand that feeling. I remember trying to sell Apple to people in those days and people not understand. I think people some still don't fully get it. And also how in, entwined the software is with that experience, which is very important because people often talk about the specs. Again, like I, I, I'm, we're doing this on a MacBook Pro, but people talk about the specs of Windows. You can get so much more RAM over here for cheaper, but they've never fully understood that it's the integration of those things that's where the magic comes from. It's the software and the hardware married. And some people criticize that, but that is the most beautiful 
part of it. And I've never lost work on a Mac, but on the Windows way back, blue screen of death, I remember finishing an entire project and corrupt file system extension, and then it was just lost forever. That stuff just happened all the time. And then Apple came around, it's like, oh, stuff just works all of a sudden. It just works. Yeah, which is huge. I think about, again, like early iPod, uh, I actually, I had a Rio MP3 player when I was in college. Same. Folks remember what that is. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, little rectangle that had like 32 megabytes of storage right megabytes yeah so (laughs) you could put like 10 songs in your pocket yeah and where do you even get those songs uh either like you down the downloaded them illegally on the internet or you ripped cds which is actually how i did it Mm -hmm. i pain in the butt and what was great about apple's experience is like you don't need to worry about any of that stuff it all just works and it's really easy and even if you're not tech savvy you could figure out how to make it all work. So true. So you've landed your dream job and you're doing what you've acknowledged in other interviews as your dream job. Obviously you wanted to be there. Who wouldn't want to work at Apple? And then you made a very controversial decision. You said, okay, I'm going to leave that and I'm going to start something else, which if I'm not mistaken at the time was anything but a guarantee. And also perhaps you're even advised against doing that. Very Talk much to me so. about the motive. Yeah. So what was the Very motivation much. for leaving yeah. your dream job? And, uh, so, and what so, had you picked up that made you want to do that? Yeah. So like, if you, if you want to like time travel with me a bit, like 2009. Uh, so we had, Apple had just started shipping like iPhone 3GS and we were working on iPhone 4 internally. Uh, and yeah, it's your point, like my dream job, like running multiple teams, building software and hardware across a bunch of different products for Apple, uh, actually really enjoying it. But I think like something was kind of gnawing at me on the inside about about purpose. And uh, there was a couple days back to back where I'm like, okay, I, I, I need to do something quite different and like use my skills for, like, for positive hum- humanitarian good. And this is kind of, was maybe a pivotal point in my whole career and directed me for the rest of my life. Uh, you know, like I had a bunch of colleagues at Apple who were working on like graphics for iPhone and like video game stuff and video games are fun, but like, sure. Yeah. Like we had some of the best engineers on the planet working on things that may not change the world. And, uh, yeah, it was one of those days like, okay, I think I need to go do something different. And through many conversations with my, who become my business partner like we decided hey like i i'm gonna leave apple and let's go build thermostats together which is like (laughs) words uttered by literally only two people on the planet probably ever like yeah yeah that's that's remarkable um so what's very fascinating because a lot of people think of apple especially nowadays they're trying to position themselves as this green and eco-friendly company the latest keynotes are all about how eco-friendly and recyclable their products are etc they have been under criticism in the past for the lack of replaceability in parts so we've sort of seen both in the new marketing spin it does bring up an interesting point about to what degree you can put eco-friendly or climate action onto an existing company versus building a new company from the ground up with those ideals baked in you might argue that apple is the uh, the former of those two where now it's trying to like reverse engineer and say okay what can we do to be more so it's it's very interesting for especially me to hear that somebody at apple would say hey this isn't enough for something else and i get it i really do but i think to a lot of people they'd be like what the heck are you talking about how could that not be enough you're building the future 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then why thermostats? So was it an eco-friendly motivation that got you into Nest or was it uh, just, I think there's potential here? Yeah, I mean, I've always been obsessed with climate, always actually, even since mm-hmm. I was a child. And like my, my now wife and I were campaigning for Al Gore in Florida back in 2000. Like I grew up in Florida, I, my wife and I both okay. did. And like being the product of like, category four or five hurricanes every year or two like like we felt it every day and like when you have like king tides in miami like we're like it's not like floods it's like the salt water is in the street like like climate change is here yeah uh, i always want to do something about it and i think this this moment in time in 2009 made things really clear like like, like we got to do some things about it. We don't have a ton of time. And actually, like the inconvenient truth had just come out pretty recently. I was going to say yeah. it was a really big inspiration for me. Uh, like, yeah, like how can I use my skills to to move the needle? Mm-hmm. And uh, Tony Fidel, my 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 then partner and I, we spent a lot of time looking at the landscape. What are the big things that we could do that like we uniquely can do? Like the skills that we have, the tools we have, our network, etc. So. Like, what's a consumer product that actually really does move the needle? And energy is the top of the list. Uh, and for an individual at home, their heating and cooling is the number one energy user in their home. Sure. Most people didn't, d- still don't know this, actually. I didn't. Mm. So, like, yeah, it became pretty obvious. Like, if we could attack half of your home's energy with this little dial, man, like, we could really move the needle. And look, like, the the proofs of the pudding on this one, like it's been eleven years, twelve years since Nest launched, and I think they're up to like one hundred and forty billion kilowatt hours saved, like wow, pla- planetary level impact. Wow! So like as a startup, you can do it. And the the key insight there was that we're wasting energy when we're not home, we're not presence sensing. So you you recognize that we could use software to limit uh, limit the amount of times that we heat and cool our home. That was that the key insight there. Uh, yes, absolutely. Like if no one's home, like wh- why heat and cool a home? The other yeah. is actually around behavior change, and this is like talking about getting uh, uh, off the beaten path, like. People usually like, get really nervous when you say like, oh, like changing consumer behavior, like that's impossible. Mm. Uh, but ultimately, like uh, our customers are in charge of their homes. How can we give them the tools to make better decisions? So we built a product that's really beautiful and easy to use, but we, we added some things that drove consumer behavior change and actually reinforced it over time. And if, if you're familiar with Nest products, like, I have the them, thermostat. Yeah. You turn the dial, and you see this little green leaf. Yep. Uh, and when you when you see the green leaf, like okay, then you know you're I, good. I, you do. You're yeah. doing the right thing. <laughs> and like at the end of the month, you get like a report on how many green leaves you got. Mm-hmm. And like that self re- it self reinforces. Uh, and over time, actually, like that behavior gets really sticky, and a few degrees here or there actually ends up being an enormous amount of difference. Incredible. And you know, nowadays, I don't know how it was when they first added this, but you can get rush hour on the grid, which I signed up for, and then it shuts down your cooling. So if you really like a cold home in the middle of summer, then you won't enjoy that. But I was like, you know what? Screw it, right? I save some money, but most importantly, you get the sense of contributing. And I just, yeah, I sweat a little bit during those moments, but the feeling of contributing to me is worth it. That's right. We're in I'm in California, so it's not, it's never that bad. <laughs> um, 
Okay, so you famously uh, had a huge exit from from Nest. Obviously, sold for I think three point two billion dollars or something crazy like that. Um, then you decided to move on. Now you're doing this product called Mill, which is just so fascinating. I'm so excited to talk about this because I'm huge into the ecotech space. I love that that is your arc here. So what was the opportunity that you saw? Were you just always looking for new products continuously, or is this something that you had a seedling of before? Yeah, after I left Nest, I had spent years, actually, and, and my wife still still runs it, investing in climate solutions. And actually, we, like, we still run a, a fund that invests in early stage climate. And really, I, we had been looking for something in the waste space. Uh, like, you know, if you're an attack climate holistically, I said energy is number one, but actually like food nag is number two. Mm. Uh, and we had been looking for something in food waste for a really long time. Food waste is about uh, about 10% of global emissions. So it's like top 10 issue, like number one on the drawdown list. So we had been looking for something and hadn't found the right opportunity. Uh, we found some things that are like, kind of like band-aids, but nothing, uh, no company looking at systems change. And uh, kind of time machine back to 2020, global pandemic, we're all stuck in our home with fruit flies. And yeah, uh, <laughs> and regular flight. Sp- spent a lot of time on Zooms and phone calls with some of my old colleagues from Nest, and talking about how could, how can we solve this? And like, we came up with a pretty novel solution, like a new a new kind of trash can for your kitchen that doesn't smell, that doesn't get fruit flies, and makes food waste awesome. Yeah, and it's such a timely thing. Also during the pandemic, my neighbor had a small compost can, too small, really. Mm-hmm. And you could smell that thing anytime she took it out, basically. And she would yeah, have to and go the rats and, dump and raccoons it in. can too. Right. Yeah. And so you'd have to take it to the outside compost bin. And we had a compost bin out there, but you need air in them. So you have to drill air holes in. It takes some time. And then I remember one time there was some heavy rains out here and it rained and it got in the air holes for the compost, completely flooded the compost. And so you have this sewage smell. I opened up that bin and I think everybody within a half mile radius knew they thought that an animal had just died or like a manure truck had just, I mean, it was offensively bad. So you know that composting is this potentially enormously good thing, but it takes time, it takes effort, it takes knowledge of putting the right components into it at the right time. So in that, with that as a backdrop, describe then how does mill work for the consumer using it? So we make it really, really easy to do the right thing with food waste. And as you said, like, composting is awesome, but it's actually it's pretty hard. And not yeah. everyone has the time or space to do it. So we made a, a new kind of bin for your kitchen that you put all your food food scraps in, and then automatically overnight, it dehydrates the food, takes the water out. Uh, and by doing that, it makes it small, but also like when food is dry, it doesn't, doesn't smell, it doesn't go bad, it's shelf stable, it takes weeks to fill up because dried food is small. Uh, and also when it's dry, it's really easy to collect it and get it to the right place. So whether you are a backyard composter or your city gives you a green bin program, or you don't have a pathway, like, well, Mill will provide you one. Like, because it's dry, it's really easy to do that. Uh, you think about, like, how many wet bags of gross stuff you lug to the curb every day or every week. All the, uh, yep. Like, a Mill household makes, like, a shoebox a month of dry wow. food. It's a shoebox. Basically nothing, because it's dry. Incredible. 
And and this is the most fascinating part, I think. I love circular economy things. I love taking waste and reusing it elsewhere. Some of the most fascinating conversations I've had on this show, Ben, people who are contributing to the circular economy. So as if that weren't enough, which is already very impressive, what can you do with the output of this? There are a few things, and I'll let you touch on it. Yeah, it's, I mean, dry food is rocket fuel. So yeah. I mean, we were going to eat it yesterday. So like, it's all of a sudden, it's not trash. Like, it's still really valuable. It's still food. So uh, for those who, who need a pickup service, we'll come collect it. And then we process the food grounds and turn it into a chicken feed ingredient. Uh, it's also really good for gardening. And if you compost and build, you know, vegetable beds, like you could work that in and you could compost and use it as a soil amendment. It's like super valuable, nutritious stuff. And today, 95% of our food waste ends up in the landfill. Right. Which contributes to methane and greenhouse gases. I mean, it's a exactly. whole, it's a whole huge thing. And that's part of the entire chain of food. You know, where does it come from? The logistics of getting it into the store and anything we can do to shrink that chain or localize it is good. And that's the part that people are slowly starting to wake up to. I think they're realizing that it's not just this one thing. It's all of the infrastructure surrounding that one thing that we've got to think about. And how can we be smarter about every single piece of that? And that's something that you have uh, managed to do. Now, if somebody installs this, I think the stat on your website is something like they save a half ton per year personally of emissions. Am I right about that? That's right. That's right. Uh, food waste is super bad when it goes to landfill. I get like 95% of it does today. So by keeping food out of landfill, it's actually enormously climate positive, uh, including like manufacturing it and shipping this product to your home and the energy, like all those things like net out to be pretty small in comparison to how bad methane is for the planet. I mean, like, it doesn't make sense that, like, we take the time and energy and land and water to grow food, only to bury it in a landfill to create poison for the atmosphere. It makes literally no sense. Right. And and we're still wrapped in plastic the whole way, right? <laughs> you take That's this right. thing and you say, okay, I'm putting it in a plastic bag, and then we're going to put it in the landfill, yes. where it can't possibly do any good, uh, or we're going to seal it away in some kind of plastic container. So what is the significance of a half ton? I think a lot of people aren't familiar enough with climate change to know. In your opinion, how significant is that to one's carbon footprint in a yearly scale? Yes. So it's like energy number one. And then for a household, like number two is transportation, like the car you drive. Number three is the food you eat and what you do with it when you're done with it. So like, yeah, in my previous company was doing doing the first one. And actually transportation with EVs works you well under the way there. Like EVs are great. Uh, So like, yeah, like number three, like this is super material. Mm-hmm. Yeah, t- about ten percent of our emissions. Ten percent of our emissions. Yeah, yeah. what's interesting There's not about a lot the ten percent problems out there? No, I can imagine. I just read an article that actually e-bikes are doing more to fight uh, car pollution than electric vehicles. I don't know if you saw that article. I find that very I, I did actually. It, like you know, to the point, like uh, if you're going to move a two to three ton hunk of steel and aluminum down the street like <laughs> right. if it could no, just be you, you like and like you know a very small like a 50 pound e-bike that's a lot easier a lot less energy yeah. required that's, that's so cool so you know you are obviously very smart but you have taken a, a series of very intelligent steps in your career so why did you think was it the inconvenient truth in those al gore days what made this what made you realize that this was something that you, A, believed in and B, that you had to be a part of? Because a lot of people in your position didn't choose that path. Yeah. They might have just chosen what would make the most money. Now, of course, the irony is that you ended up becoming very successful. But, 
you know, what made you decide that this was a problem that you could solve? And why did you want to throw your hat into the ring? And why do you still want to throw your hat in the ring? Yeah, whenever I look at new opportunities, I usually look at about, you know, kind of three things. One is uh, like founder product fit, which is not something you usually hear about. Like, at, like as a founder, like can this founder or this founding team have a unique angle to solve this problem? And do they have the skills to do it? And in this case, like Tony and I had spent the last 10 to 20 years building products. Like we could do this. Uh, and at Mill, similarly, because they're like, yeah, I've been building stuff for 20 years. Like surely like we, we could build this product. Uh, two is like the impact side. Like is it a meaningful enough problem to solve? Uh, like you don't want to spend your time and energy like, you know, all the gray hair I've developed over the years. Like <laughs> it doesn't matter. So like does it matter? And then three is like can it scale? And, it, you know, can it scale? Meaning like can you reach millions, tens of millions of homes or people or customers and that actually relates to the business side too. Like if it could scale, then the business is going to be there. But kind of look at so like I'm, the business as like, is like the yeah. last priority. Right. But I'm sure that, I think this is probably a rhetorical question, but if you hadn't gone, if you hadn't gotten that internship at Apple, do you think you would have still been a product person or an entrepreneur even? Ooh. Yeah. Uh, my life could have been very different, actually. I had also applied for an internship at NVIDIA. Uh, okay. You'd be just and this was, again, this a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, this is 25 years ago, right? It's yeah. uh, 24 years ago. Uh, so, like, there was a chance that I could be working on GPUs or something like that sure. in a totally different <laughs> right. world. And, uh, yeah, like, it's funny to think about, like, the butterfly effect of our lives. And, like, sometimes very small things become incredibly consequential for your entire path forward. Yeah, I got very lucky, like the right place at the right time with the right team. I mean, surely that must be the case. What are some of the lessons that you learned that emboldened you over your time at Apple to realize that you were capable of taking on something by yourself as a founder? Yeah, uh, in 2007, uh, after after we kind of shipped the first iPhone, uh, I kind of switched over to, to run a new product for Apple. It was a really tough one. Uh, we were working on a new iPod shuffle with no buttons, uh, mm. which in, in hindsight was kind of a crazy idea. Mm. Uh, this is definitely a Steve Jobs, Johnny Ive special, like the sleekest <laughs> okay. product with no buttons. <laughs> right. the Apple still gets... Nothing can go wrong. You're right, exactly. Uh, but I kind of, I ran that product kind of end to end. You know, hardware, mm. manufacturing, software, user experience, got to present to Steve uh, on, a, on a few occasions. Uh, and I really got to do it end to end, even though it was a small product, you know, like, a little gum stick. Uh, like, okay, like I could build a product end to end and lead teams. And uh, we shipped a really great high quality product, albeit with like crazy buttons on the earbuds and uh, mm -hmm. a fairly robotic voice that talked to you through your earbuds. Like these mm -hmm. are the early days of speech. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's gotten a lot better since then. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you saw the, the, pro the chain, you saw how you get the materials, you saw how you market a product like that. You must have had great insight into the life cycle from beginning to end of building any kind of product, which I think uh, very few people are fortunate enough to have. Now, if somebody wants to do something, if they want to contribute and they want to contribute in the way that you have, what kind of advice would you have for that person? Where should they get started? Do they need to seek capital first? Do they need an idea for like, what's the best way to begin? Uh, I mean, more so than ideas or capital, it's really about team and network. 
I mean, like, mm. I mean, ideas actually are relatively easy. Like, you know, people have new crazy ideas all the time. Mm. Uh, the question is like that. with your great ideas, like, uh, how are you going to get them done? And yeah. I often coach like young aspiring engineers or entrepreneurs, like, like go find a great team to work with and work mm. with them for a few years. You're going to learn a ton, but also you're going to build a network and a reputation that's going to help you go accomplish your dreams and the next things you want to go do. To what degree do you think that managing a team or managing processes, are these things universal in your in your estimation? Like, for example, if you know how to assemble a team, you know how to work with a team, you know how to put those structures in place, do you feel that that is a skill that translates to almost any venture? 100%. Actually, it's the most mm. important skill. Okay. Uh, there are so few things that you could do alone. Like, it takes a team, it takes a village to do anything, anything of substance. And I think about the best founding teams, the best entrepreneurs are able to like build a village around them. And like, no one has the skills to do everything either. So knowing your weaknesses and being self-aware enough to know which kind of people you need to pull in to make it happen. Uh, yeah. I, I think when both as an investor and as an entrepreneur, like team is everything. That's so fascinating. And, and what does network mean? People have a very weird relationship to networking. Some people believe in it a lot. Some people see it as some sort of voodoo. Other people see it as a scammy thing or they go to network events and everybody's just pitching themselves. Nobody's there to buy. Everybody's trying to sell. So how do you think people can approach networking in a smarter way or think about networking? What are some insights you have there? Yeah, when I think about networking, I really think about building relationships and trust. And right. like showing at a cocktail hour with like a name badge and a glass of wine is like, that's not building relationships and trust. No. Uh, uh, it's really about, you know, identifying the people that will go out into the desert with you for 40 years and like hopefully come out the other end with something really <laughs> magical. Uh, like, and that's, it's really hard. Like building anything new is hard. Uh, yeah. And like uh, as an entrepreneur, like uh, I, I make it, sound easy, but it is not easy at all. And like, there's a reason why I'm full of gray and I'm only 40. It is like very challenging work. So, you know, having a team that really has that trust and bond to get through those hard times together is the most important thing. And it's really hard to do that with just like people you met at a cocktail bar. Uh, Mm. You know, have you been in the trenches together before? Have you built things in college or, you know, on a a company before? Uh, I find that with early teams like that, that team knitting is probably the most important thing more than what they're working on. Cause what they're working on will change. Right. But smart people that you can trust and rely on. That's the huge that's right. thing. I, I get it. That makes so much sense. Now, some people have different opinions on whether you should build a company to sell it or whether you should stick with it. Obviously when you're talking about overarching goals, such as my chief intent isn't even to make money per se, but it's to, impact the environment or to change people's behavior. How do you um, see that when it comes to things like exiting a company? Is that a conscious choice or do you stick with something until some switch flips? What's your thought there? Yeah. I'm a fan of building for scale. And uh, if if you build something that is important and is scaling and is material, then inherently like there's value there. And uh, you got to build to the long term too, and sometimes uh, other companies will say, "Hey, like, like this is really strategic for us. Like, this is really going to help our business, and like together we can make this a lot bigger." And look, I 
I've been there and it's really hard to turn those kind of things down when they do come. That said, like, mm. uh, very few people go to build a house to then flip it. The point of building a house is to live in the house. And, (laughs) uh, as an entrepreneur and as an investor, you look for others that are looking to take it all the way and build something that's going to be generationally changing. That's what I'm Mm -hmm. trying to do. And then everything else is just a consequence or, so are you the type of person that gets bored easily or do you, are you able to say, no, I I could work on this for 40 years as it is, or do you feel like every five years you're like, I got to switch? Hmm. Uh, I mean, I've only had three jobs in my entire life. Uh, okay. Worked at Apple, twenty-five years, three jobs, Nest, yeah. and 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 now Mill. Uh, so I, you know, I, t- I tend to stick with things, and actually, I tend to look for folks that also like to stick with things. Look again to make something of consequence that's important takes time. You can't really do that in two to three years. Mm. Uh, you got to really be able to stick with things, and uh, you know that's it's something I, I look for in 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 new hires and in actually in entrepreneurs we invest in. Mm. can they stick with it that's yeah especially in this day and age that seems to be a very valuable skill where all of us generally quit all kinds of things all the time talking about the pandemic who is still baking bread three years on i ask you uh how many sourdough starters are oh being gosh. used currently uh, 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 uh one of our lead engineers uh emma bright still brings in a loaf of bread every week to the mill office it's pretty awesome and she's like, hello, anybody? anybody? Yeah. Oh, we love it. It's pretty cool. Yeah, uh, you get uh, to benefit from it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to worry about it. But yeah, that's the kind of thing. I, and, and that's what I love about having a North Star that's something other than just making money. I mean, that's that's interesting. You know, the process of how one makes tons of money is interesting. But I find it more interesting than people who are motivated by something else. And that's why this show isn't just seeking out people who made the most money for the sake of money. I've never seen that as a worthy goal nothing really against it per se but uh but i find that having that north star that changes the way people make decisions and it changes the way people think about business and that's the part that i find so interesting um for you what do you consider to be your north star is it people is it uh, tons of emissions wasted what is the number one metric that means the most to you with my mill hat on, it's keeping food at a landfill. So like the stat we okay. look at internally is like how many pounds of food are we not sending to landfill every year? Mm-hmm. And uh, again, like it ends up adding up pretty quick. Like average American mm-hmm. wastes about 600 pounds of food a year. So like mm-hmm. that's really Only. add up fast. I would have guessed even more than that, honestly. Yeah. We waste, uh, let's call it about a third of the food we, we grow. So okay. it ends up I've being quite that. a bit. Yeah. 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 So and and for, like with mill, like it's, it's pounds of food wasted. Like I think about holistically for my life, like I'm, I'm super focused on climate with my entrepreneur hat, with my investor hat, with my philanthropic hat, with my policy hat. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's really about bending that greenhouse gas curve. And mm-hmm. can we get to a two degree planet, mm-hmm. which in itself is still challenging. Right. And we don't even know if it's possible. That's the thing. It's uh, what we do know is that if we do nothing, nothing's going to happen that we know for sure. So at least we should applaud the effort and try. That's my personal belief. I also believe that it's nobler to try and fail than to not try at all. Um, Well, the thing is with with climate change, it's, it's not like a binary thing. It's not like we made it or we didn't make it like the, the climate deployment work that we're doing today with renewables, with EVs, this is all still really important because we don't want to end up in like a five degree future scenario. Like, <laughs> right. So like, like, like the work Literally we do is really important. Like 
And mm-hmm. they, there's not like, you know, there are tipping points, but like we're, we're we want to get as close to uh, a normalized, normalized planet as we can get. But like the work we do is still important. Even if we mm-hmm. don't hit the ambitious goals that we have, we got to get as close mm-hmm. as we can. Mm. Do you consider yourself in general an optimist or a pessimist about the future? Uh, 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 a very optimistic person. Like you kind of have to be okay. to be an mm-hmm. entrepreneur, like almost a little bit delusional in that. Like, mm-hmm. oh, like I'm a 26 year old engineer at Apple and like I could leave <laughs> and start my own company. Like that's crazy. That doesn't make any sense. Right. Right. Like now I guess you could say it makes sense. Like, okay, like entrepreneur who's built stuff, has capital, could build a new company. But like, yeah, I, it takes a little bit of a delusional optimist to start a new company. Is there anything that keeps you awake at night? Anything that you, you panic about or do you hit the pillow straight to sleep? <laughs> Eight hours of blissful rest later, you're awake. I kind of worry about everything. Uh, okay. I kind of worry about everything. And like, even as, like as a climate entrepreneur, this may be the hardest part is I know all the numbers. Like I know how dire the straits are and how important the work mm. is. And, mm. uh, we got to grow faster. We get out, get out, got to get out to more homes. Like everything keeps me up at night. And then there's like the day-to-day operations of building and running a company. Like there is stuff every day. Uh, mm. uh, it is a very, very challenging job, but it's worth it. Right. And would you say that that is the level that you're operating on more so than the day-to-day when it comes to stuff like anxiety? Are you more in the macro world with your brain or are you more in the micro? Oh crap. I've got to do these eight things today. Uh, both, and both. Actually, okay. you kind of do, I gotta, this is like <laughs> that's a, where the gray hair comes from <laughs> both and yeah. challenge uh like yeah. at, a, at a larger company if you're the ceo of yeah. a larger company you get you could look a quarter ahead or a year ahead or two years ahead and actually yeah. mm. the more senior you get in an organization the more you're supposed to do that but as an entrepreneur like like week to week really matters and are we hitting our weekly goals yeah. uh let alone like quarter or annual goals uh yeah, it's you got to be able to live in the moment, and like mm. you live and die by what you do every day, uh, yeah. but also the long term really matters too. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that's that's very profound. So if we agree, or we thought maybe at the beginning, from iPod up until now, the combining of existing elements or the awareness you could call it the arbitrage of new technology developments with. Let's just start with that hard drive example. We're aware from going to a trade show in South Korea that they're going to start making hard drives in a smaller form factor. And the public at large doesn't yet know that hard drives come in a smaller form factor. We're not going to sell them hard drives, but we're going to put it in an enclosure and it's an iPod, right? Mm -hmm. There are certain technological advancements that we know about. Like we know we can put a Wi-Fi chip in everything. We know that we can put a lithium ion battery in almost anything and make it electric. How can somebody train their brain to think of combinations of existing materials or existing ideas and combine them into something new that has another function that nobody's thought of yet? I'm so glad you asked this. Like, this actually is my, this is my theory of change on innovation. Like, true breakthrough innovation actually is extremely rare. Actually, most innovation is about integration. It's like, you know, finding these pieces that are out there and putting them together in novel ways. And actually... This is a story of Apple. This is the story of Nest. Like mm. we built Nest because Wi-Fi chips got really inexpensive because they're in every smartphone. Uh, this is what enabled us to build Mill. Like oh, like the smart home is already a thing, uh, and you know we can now build like very complex, almost appliance level products for consumers. Like could never mm. do that before. 
uh, you know, manufacturing is easier. Uh, so yeah, you, you gotta actually training your brain is the right way to, to put it. Like, you know, what pieces are out there that you could put together in a novel way, but also make it really easy in the process. Mm. Yeah. So how do you know then when you've got it, what is your, is it a gut feeling when you say like, okay, this is it because you could have done anything after nest realistically. So what made you say, no, we're going to make an individual trash dehydrator. It's so specific. It makes so much sense again in retrospect, but mm -hmm. what clicked in your brain to say, that's the opportunity or this is the way yes. that we're going to solve that other problem of food waste. Again, I'll, I'll, I'll touch on team again. Uh, yeah. Like, I'm a very gut driven person, like okay. living with a product every day. I'm like, okay, this is a winner. It's it, like, it's changed our life. Mm. My partner, Harry, actually is very data-driven and he's looking at consumer research and, you know, what, what is the, the feedback data saying and like, how are these things performing? And like, when, when you put those two skills together, you're like, oh, now you're getting a really good picture. Like, like I'm kind of bringing the emotion, like, how does it feel every day? And then he's like, okay, like rationally, like, do people use it? Do people love it? Is it sticky? And those yeah. two things together, we're like, okay. This is a winner. We got to scale this thing. So what then, what do you think the top three or top five products, what are you most excited about? What do you love the most in 2023 or what's coming up? Ooh, uh, you know, my, the mill might be for me one of the best products I've ever made. Uh, okay. And like no one wakes up every day and said, man, like I hate my stinky trash. Uh, <laughs> right. But like once you don't have stinky trash anymore, like there's no going back. It's like probably what life was like a hundred years ago before the refrigerator. And then all of a sudden, like right. you've got refrigeration. It's like, oh my right. God, there's no going back. Or like the dishwasher. Like, yeah. You're, there is we're no not going, going back, back to life yeah. before the dishwasher. Oh God, no. Mine broke and it was a nightmare. Yeah. This is Terrible. one of those kinds of things. So I think like yeah. Mill, I'd say maybe top of the list. Next is actually air conditioning. Uh, mm. And this like on a macro scale, like the more modern societies get and the more, uh, modern you know their homes get like air conditioning becomes the norm uh there are a whole suite of new companies working on more efficient more easy to install better air conditioning systems uh and like that's one that's inherently scalable too like yeah you know, every home and business in the world yeah. uh and then like i think electric vehicles also i'm still i'm very bullish on uh yeah. I, I was an early adopter myself i had like a nissan leaf back in 2007 or 2006 wow uh, okay and it had like 70 miles of range right is, that well, was abysmal by the way uh, <laughs> yeah. but yeah like now now my wife and i that's all we have we don't own a, a petrol powered car solar panels the whole works i assume we do so solar panels yeah. on the roof we've got a battery in the basement and a span panel to manage it like we've got like you know we're kind of living in the future a little bit and like, yeah. again, like we could afford, we have the privilege to live in the future, but yes. over the next five to 10 years, this is what everyone is going to be living with, like yeah. more efficient, cleaner living, and just a lot easier. Yeah. How cool is that? Um, you know, I talked to a guy who's, I don't know if you've heard of this technology, you might've seen it here and there, but they're condensing water, drinking water from the air. So you could imagine that if that condenser is powered by a solar panel, how self-sufficient an individual home could truly right. be in the future. I mean, that's just wild, right? Yes. And then if the grid shuts down, you're more or less okay. Mm -hmm. that's I right. love thinking about stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, like the last 200 years of human progress have been kind of driven by extraction, like resource extraction. Right. Uh, 
I think the next 20 years is really about how we could use what we have and build these renewable and circular resources. Mm-hmm. It's pretty cool. Like it's a pretty exciting yes. future. <laughs> Hence optimist. It is. Like it's Hence a better optimist, future yeah. and yeah. it's better for the planet. So like, yeah, yeah we're going to go do that, of course. Yes. Well, I'm very, very, very glad to have met you. And I'm glad that there are people in your position out there who are thinking of these things because again, it didn't have to be. And if you had gone the NVIDIA route, maybe you'd just be the Bitcoin guy right now. Maybe you'd be the <laughs> NFT guy right now. <laughs> really and then I probably yeah. wouldn't be talking to you. You might be <laughs> a fabulously wealthy. AI, I don't know. AI crypto thing. Yeah, right. I don't even know. You'd be oh, a crypto God. bro. You'd be selling GPUs, you know, working out deals with China and all of that stuff for the, the highest bidder. Um, but I'm glad you didn't. And I'm also incredibly appreciative of you taking the time to sit with me and to share your wisdom and insight. It's a, it's not every day that you get to come across a story as incredible as yours. And not only do I believe in Mill a lot, I also am very impressed with the specific path that you took to get there and the choices that you made, which again, were anything but foregone conclusions in the moment that you made them. And had things gone the other way, Maybe you could be uh, in your parents' basement somewhere. It's like, why, oh, why did I leave Apple? But it didn't work out that way, um, which is just so cool. Uh, So I think one of the things that is most important as we sort of wrap things up here is for people who are looking to make a change or maybe people who are in a job or a company, they're not quite sure whether they're doing the right thing or maybe they don't feel super great about the work that they're doing. What steps might you advise them to take to put themselves on a path of more meaning for themselves. Yeah. Well, like life is short. I mean, everyone says that it's true. And you never know, like never know what's going to happen in the future. Like, so spend your days on things that matter with people that you like working with. Uh, Like we just don't have the time to waste. Uh, You know, you you never know what's going to happen. So, I mean, I, I, the way I like to live is, spend my time with great people working on wonderful things that are important for the planet. And just like, that's the way we got to do it. And when you have that feeling like I had, you just got to follow, follow that feeling. It might take you somewhere. Great. Yeah, great. All right. Last and final question uh, on a scale from zero to 10 zero is, I think I have the worst life of all humans ranked on the planet. Literally the bottom 10 is, I have the absolute best life of all 8 billion plus people. Where do you feel that you're on that scale? I'm probably like a nine. I mean, I, I, I am uh, very aware of my privilege as a successful entrepreneur. That said, like, the gray hair and high blood pressure, like, maybe it takes it from a 10 <laughs> to a nine. Okay. So you've sacrificed your health, but for something noble. <laughs> so you, you can at least... That's right. You have... You have shaved away years from your life. It reminds me of that scene. Have you seen The Princess Bride, the movie The Princess Bride? Of course. Uh, where Wesley is in, the, he's in, hooked up to the contraption and the contraption removes a year from his life and then eventually he pulls it up to 50 or something like that. Do you think entrepreneurship is like willfully strapping yourself to that machine? It, it, it certainly feels like it some days. I mean, some <laughs> days are like the best day ever. And yeah. some days are also the worst day ever. And often those yeah. are the same day. I, I, there yes. was an interview with Jensen Huang from NVIDIA the other day about like, okay. asked if he would do it again. He's like, no way I'd do this again. Oh yeah, I saw that one. He's like, no, no way I'd do it again. Like, wow, like that's, that's mind blowing. Like that's, yeah. he probably, again, like there's a lot of years lost on this journey. Yeah. Well, I appreciate the fact that you have chosen to go on the right path and that you're constantly thinking of ways to 
innovate on those 10% problems that affect us all. I think it's super cool. Um, the website is easy to find, but where else can people support your work? Shout out, promote whatever you like to wrap this up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you can find us at mill.com or at mill on Instagram or reach out to me. Uh, again, we're a startup. So like, I, I love getting emails from people who are interested. Just yeah, shoot me a LinkedIn or a note. Sounds good. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. I very much appreciate your sentiment. Um, and with that, the official podcast is over. Thanks again for listening to another episode of the Beat the Often Path podcast. Oh my goodness, that was an incredible one. I was so deeply, deeply honored to have Matt on this show. Please share this episode with somebody who might want to learn from Matt's journey. And of course, if you enjoyed the show, rate it five stars. Leave a positive review on your podcast platform of choice. It would mean so much to me. Otherwise, I will bring you more stories in the following week. Stay tuned and thanks for listening.